Well, this morning we're going to be uh, picking up in Hebrews chapter four, the last, uh, the last three, uh, the last few verses, chapter, verses fourteen through through sixteen, um, <clears throat> which is uh, going to uh, come back to the topic that was originally introduced in two seventeen, as Jesus is the high priest, and uh, this is a uh, this is a theme that is going to occupy a great deal of the book of Hebrews. It's really emphasized in chapters 5 uh, and then 7 through 9. It comes up all through the text, actually. But in those places, it's especially especially uh, emphasized. And uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, um, uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, at some specifics of it this morning. This particular text, when you come to this text, you're looking at a New Testament rendition of Leviticus 16. Uh, greatly simplified because Leviticus 16 has got a bazillion verses in it. And it's the detailed information on how the Day of Atonement was to be exercised in Israel. And so we're going to be referring to Leviticus 16. We're not going to read it, but uh, we're going to be referring to Leviticus 16 as we, as we move through this. Because if you were a Hebrew Christian and you were reading this text, you would know where it came from. You would know immediately this is the Day of Atonement. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus is the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's, 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 where, this, uh, that's where this text finds its roots, uh, if you will. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to this text. And uh, by just by way of announcement this morning, in two weeks from today, Kathy and I are going to see our daughter and her family in Nevada. So we're going to be gone for a few days. And I, I think uh, Brandon Bromell, if we get it cleared, is going to take the class. And he's going to continue in Hebrew, so uh, we'll do, we won't miss a lick that way. So... Uh, 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 I'm, we're going we're gonna to make sure that's okay with everybody, but nevertheless, that's kind of our plan. No, you should stay home. <laughs> you can fight with my daughter because she's tougher than me. So you know, <laughs> but uh, no, we're going to go. We're going to go. We're going to go there. So, are there any uh, any prayer requests this morning? And we will get going. <laughs> Just continue to pray for the transition to the new building. Oh yeah, that's going to be. This is the lull before the storm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been gone a couple Sundays. I, I, I wasn't uh, aware of the new building, but they, they got one. Yeah, they're in escrow. They accepted the offer, and we're in escrow, and we're hoping everything goes smooth. That's the one on White Lane. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of... Don't la- miss a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you miss, you miss a lot if you miss a week. Well, this morning, okay. <laughs> See, there you go. There, there it's said. Ed, would you open us this morning, please? Gracious Father, we thank you for your love for us that's shown to us every day. Open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, Father, to what you have for us today. Give wisdom to the leadership team. And Father, during this holiday season, may people realize that all of this is because of you. And Father, I'm almost thankful that the supply chain has been reduced to where we have to focus on each other a little bit more. We give our lives to you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to, we're going to look here at uh, Jesus, our great high priest. 
And I've kind of broke it down under, under that theme that he's the priest of our confession. He's the priest who can sympathize and the priest who gives confidence. So we will uh, we'll look at that as we move through the, the individual verses this, uh, this morning. Uh, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's, that's going to be our first point as, as we move into this. It starts off... Uh, this is another one of those words that if you had a, a New American Standard, it would say, therefore, if you have a King James, it's going to say, uh, seeing then. Uh, it's one of those that draws attention back. But where it's really drawing attention back to is chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 17 and following. And, and just, uh, just as kind of a reminder, I want to look at those. It, chapter 2 and verse 17, <clears throat> it, writes, it reads, therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that's it's since he is all of that. Since he is all of that, we have a great high priest. That's, that's, that's how this theme flows at this, at this juncture. Uh, if you remember, we talked about this uh, back in chapter 2, that he is both the ambassador and the, and the high priest. The ambassador is the one who represents a sovereign before a people. That's basically who he is. Uh, and so Jesus is the one who represented God before man. That's, that's, uh, uh, that was the, the thought there. Here, we're going to focus on his priesthood, uh, the one who represents man before God. That was the job of the high priest. It was the high, you go to Leviticus 16, and you look at that. That's what Aaron is doing. He is coming in to represent the Hebrew people before God. That's, that's the picture that is, that is, uh, that is ex- expanded there. Uh, he's the one who represents the, the people before the sovereign. So he does both, but in this function uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to focus on the, on the priesthood. So now he goes on to say, but he says that he is a great high priest. And this is kind of an interesting phrase. <clears throat> in Hebrew, it literally would say, literally if you would read high priest, it would say great priest. So what this says is he's the great, great priest. If, if, you were, if this was in Hebrew writing, he is the great, great priest. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, the, the point is, the point is that here he is greater than all the Levitical line. That's, that's the point. He far exceeds the Levitical line. He is the great high priest. That's, that's the, the idea he's trying to make here. Luther said of Jesus that he was the greatest of all priests. That's, that's the point that that particular phrase is saying. Since we have this great, great high priest, or just great, great priest, um, uh, um, that's, that's the focus. And then he goes on and he says, he says that as our high priest, he has passed through the heavens. Incidentally, this is written in a text that means that it's a state of completion. He's done it. Once and for all, that's a finished work. That, that, that's the point here. It's not something that as Aaron went every year into the Holy of Holies, 
Jesus did it once, and it was done. That, that's the way this is worded. Uh, it, was, it was done. And it refers back to chapter 1, verse 3. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's, that's what this reference is to. It's, it's, a reference to, it's a reference to him completing his work and sitting down, completing the work of redemption, completing the work of atonement, and sitting down at the right hand of God. That's, that's the idea that he's talking about here. Uh, in, in chapter 16 of Leviticus, if you read through that, what you see is this long and deliberate and, and, and exhaustive set of regulations and standards that are to be met by the Levitical priest before he can go into to, to the Holy of Holies. It's one man on one day for only a short moment. Only a short amount of time. And it's got this little clause that runs through it that says, if you don't, you die. It's serious. It's serious business. And, and so, so here we have the Levitical priest who stands. He stands before the mercy seat. He doesn't sit down. There's no chairs in there. Uh, he goes in, he does his business, and he gets out. But this says, our priest passed through the heavens, and he sat down. The work is complete. That's, that's the picture here. There is no more yearly time of having to go into the to the Holy of Holies to make a temporary atonement for sin, a covering for just a period of time. Jesus removed it. That's, that's, the, that's the big picture that he's trying to say here. Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this phrase, through the heavens, is an interesting one. It's not depicting levels of heaven. There's been different theologians that have come up with different ideas that there's, I think there's one guy that's got seven. But anyway, there's different layers of heaven. That's not what this is talking about. Normally in the New Testament, when, when Paul was talking about being, being taken up into the third heaven, we normally see that as saying, is referring to <clears throat> the, the idea of, he, of the heavens being referred to as the atmosphere, space, and then the, the, the domain of God. And that's the idea here, I think, is it, what it really means is God, uh, Jesus sets above it all. That's what it means. That's what it's referring to. Jesus ascended to the highest point. He's at the pinnacle is, is the idea that's being expressed here. In Hebrews uh, 7, <clears throat> in Hebrews 7, uh, verse 26, uh, the author writes, For it was indeed fitting that we, should ha- that, we would, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There he puts it that way. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of worship. He's, he's, seated, he's seated at the highest point is what is, what is being referred to there. And then uh, in Ephesians 4.10. In Ephesians 4.10, Paul wrote, He who has descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the picture here. It's his exalted position is what is being talked about here. He sits far above any other priest. He sits at the pinnacle of of the heavens. And then the next thing he says, 
The next thing he says is, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then he makes sure we know exactly who he's talking about. He says, Jesus, the Son of God. It's interesting he put these two phrases together. Because first of all, he calls him Jesus, uh, the human name, the name in his humanity that is given to him. And then he gives the reference to his deity, the Son of God. Uh, that, that's, that's what these two phrases put together. It's here speaking of the God-man, Jesus, who was both 100% man and 100% God with no mixing. It's, it's the doctrine of, of, uh, <clears throat> of the hyperstatic union of Christ, both God and man at the same time. That's, that's what it means here. Uh, and he's, he is... He is both, both, both human and both divine, and therefore he is, he is, he is, he is the God man, and he is man the God, is, is the idea. Hebrews 9, uh, 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance since, since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Here again, we're looking at the Day of Atonement. He's the mediator. He's the, he's the representative. He's the priest. He's the ambassador. He is all of those things. He mediates between God and man. That's the picture that is being presented here. And he's the only one qualified. First Timothy 2. Five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. It's the same idea that the Hebrews is expressing here. The work of reconciliation is complete. Harmony between God and man is reestablished. He, Jesus, by way of the cross, through resurrection, through ascension, is exalted above the, is, <clears throat> is, excuse me, is exalted above the heavens, a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what he's saying to us here. That's, that's, that's the idea. This is a completed, finished work. And then he says, as a, as a result of that, he says, he says, because this is whom we worship, this is whom we serve, this is the priest who stands before God on our behalf, because of that, let us hold fast our confession. It's another reminder not to slip back. There was a tendency here, we've kind of talked about this before. We have a bunch of Hebrew Christians. These are people who, who received Jesus Christ. And, <clears throat> and as a result of that, they were excommunicated from their Jewish families. Some of them lost their jobs. They lost their possessions. They lost their homes. Some of them may have been trying to keep a foot back in Judaism. That seems to be the appearance as we run through this text, that they might slide back a little bit. Here he is reminding them who Jesus is, what he did on their behalf, how he is far superior to Aaron or any priest that followed him, and that they are to hold fast their confession in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's referring to here. He says they are to hold fast. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a logical result. It's a necessity. It's a reminder of necessity. Uh, and and, in, and and as to that confession, Paul gives us a, a clue to that in Romans, in Romans, uh, uh, in Romans ten ten. He says, "For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." 
The idea here is that we believe. We take this belief into our person. We make it a part of us. And as a result of that, we tell everybody. We open our mouths and speak. We both, we both believe and we proclaim. That's the idea uh, that, uh, that is being expressed here. You know, you've, you've probably heard somebody say this. Oh, religion's a private thing with me. Not Christianity. You can't keep it private. You can't. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must say so. You must declare it. That's what the text is saying. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Hughes, in his commentary, said that faith is the belief that is both inwardly entertained by the heart and outward, outwardly professed before men. That's, that's the idea. That's our confession. Our confession is we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Seated at the right hand of God and coming again. All those, thing, all those things about his resurrection are involved in that. And we profess that to a world that doesn't know him. That's, that's the point here. And this is a reminder that seems to be necessary throughout the book of Hebrews because this not necessarily in these same words, but this reminder is repeated over and over again in Hebrews uh, 3, 1, in, in uh, 10, uh, 23, in 3, 6, and 14, in 10, 35, and in 12, 12. Uh, over and over again, that confession is made. So he, he begins by opening up by saying, Jesus is our high priest. He's a great high priest. He's above all high priests who is at the pinnacle of heaven. And he is the God-man who saved us, who redeemed us, who completed the work of atonement. That's the picture here. And he says, as a result of that, don't shy away from professing him. Believing and professing him. That's, that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on and he says, not only is he the high priest of our, our confession, but he's a high priest who can sympathize. Verse 14 is pictured Jesus as the high priest who is transcendent who is above, who has reached the pinnacle of heaven. <clears throat> and it, can give the, it could give the impression to the reader, well, maybe he's just out of touch with us. If that's where he is, how does he realize what we're going through here? That could be a question that would pop into their mind. Uh, but what we have here is, is that J- Jesus also knows the state uh, that we find ourselves in and that he is, he is, he is not remote from us but is rather intimately involved with us. Matthew 28, 20, the promise he gave at his ascension was, I am with you to the end of the age. He never will leave us, is the idea here. So he goes on then in verse 15 and says, For, hold fast your confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a powerful text. He, he says here, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he knows temptation. Now those two weird words we kind of need to focus on for just a minute. Weakness does not mean sin. Understand that. When he uses the word weakness, it doesn't equal sin. It basically is a word that refers to human limitations. It refers to things like 
I get tired. I get hungry. I get thirsty. You know, it's those, those kinds of things. It's, I experience pain. I have a need for companionship. Yeah. So not just physical, but emotional as well. Yeah, it could be emo- it's emotional as well. It's just the limitations of the human being is, is the idea that's being, being expressed here. And, and, what he's, and, and all of these things, if you go through the, new, uh, the gospel accounts, Jesus experienced. He was hungry. He was tired. Uh, he needed people around him at times. He needed his disciples to pray with him at Gethsemane, but they went to sleep. In the, in the spiritual sense, could you say that the capacity to sin, because he, 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 he resisted temptation. We're not that temptation yet, but no, he couldn't sin. He was sinless. Yeah. He couldn't sin. But, and we'll get to that with the word temptation. We'll explain <laughs> that with the word temptation. Uh, we're just talking about human frailty here. Just the normal things everybody experienced. Jesus experienced those too. Temptation is also a word that doesn't equal sin. Being tempted does not mean you have sinned. It doesn't mean that. This word carries the idea of testing or proving. That's what it, that's what it means. To test or to prove. That's what temptation means. Now, in my work in the automotive field for 40 years, I think, something like that. Uh, one of the things we did was a lot of testing. And we did. And there were two different kinds of testing. Now, we didn't do the one kind, uh, but there's two different kinds of testing. One, one is called non-destructive testing, and the other one is called destructive testing, and you can probably figure out what that means. <laughs> uh, destructive testing is what they do in the factory with a bolt when they stretch it to find its limits, to find out just how far it will go. You know, before it breaks and then it gets graded. That's how we get grading in bolts. If you look on the top, all those little things on the top, it tells you how strong the bolt is. Uh, but any, at any rate, uh, that, that's one of, the, one of the things. One of the things in a fire service, they did it to ladders. <laughs> they put weights on it until they found out how much weight it took to break it. That's kind of important to a guy climbing a ladder, you know. Uh, we did it with ladder trucks, too. But now we tested the ladder trucks to make sure they would meet the capacities they were supposed to. That was non-destructive testing. We did smog testing to make sure things stayed within parameters. We weren't doing that to make them fail. You know, now the, the destructive testing out of the way. We're talking about just normal testing. We didn't do that. We tested diesel engines to see what the particulate matter was. We didn't do that to make them fail. We did that to make them clean. You know, that was the idea. That was the idea. That's what this word means. It means to test or to prove. That's what this word temptation means, if it's properly understood. That's, that's the idea here. It's uh, <clears throat> a, um, good or virtue is, uh, is resisting or overcoming the, tr- the temptation. And fortunately for us, we had 1 Corinthians 10.13 that tells us that with every temptation comes a way of escape. It can be escaped. God has made provision. And, and that's, that's an important thing to understand. Sin, on the other hand, is yielding to the temptation. James, in a couple of places in his book, gives us a couple of ways that happens. He says, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, it's by entertaining Sinful desires. 
You know, it's by entertaining those things, by keeping them at the forefront of your mind and then acting upon them is basically what he what he's he's talking about there. He said that another way is in chapter four, verse 17 is when you know what is right and then not doing it. That's sin. That's failing the test. Uh, that's failing the test. I guess if you were taking a test in school, it would be like, well, I know the answer to number three, but I'm going to give a wrong answer. You know, and you fail the test. That's 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 the idea here. Uh, but the text the text the text says the text says that he was tempted as we are. In every way he was tempted. In every way he was tempted. Uh, Jesus knew our weaknesses and he understood temptation because he experienced it. Because he experienced it. Now, most often, I think uh, it's pretty common, we go to Matthew 4, uh, 1 and following, where, te- where, where Jesus in the wilderness was, and Satan is tempting him, and he tempts him to his personal need, first of all, the need for food, because he was hungry. He'd been 40 days fasting. I'd be a little hungry. Uh, and he, he was hungry, and he was weak at that point. And so he tested him in, in that regard to turn the rocks into bread. Uh, to do to do that, uh, he had, he attested him then about a claim. He says, "Hey, you know, uh, you're the son of God. Jump off the pinnacle of the tower, and uh, uh, myriads of your angels will come. Will not let your foot hit the ground. You know, show the world just how powerful you really are. You know, get the acclaim that you rightly deserve." And he resisted that one. And then the last one was he. He uh, tempted him on the ambition for power when he said, look at all these worlds that I control. I'll give them all to you. Just bow. You know, those are those are temptations. He experienced those things. But there was a lot more that he experienced than just that. For example, in chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 38 and following in the garden, he was tempted to draw back. There was the temptation to not want to do this. In, in, in Matthew 27, verses 40 and following, as he hung on the cross, the crowd mocked him and said, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. That's a temptation. Those were all temptations. In Luke chapter 22, verse 28, he, uh, he, he uh, and speaking to his disciples, and in speaking about this testing, he, he spoke to the disciples who, who had continued with him in his temptation. In other words, his entire ministry had been a time of tempting to desert it. And they had remained with him. That's, that was the point of that text. So Jesus is not untouched by temptation. He knows what temptation is. He knows the 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 temptations that come with weak, with the normal human weaknesses. He knows the temptations that come for acclaim, for power, for escaping pain, and on and on and on. All of those, all of those kinds of things. William Tyndale, you know who William Tyndale was? You've heard of the Tyndale Bible uh, in the 1500s. He uh, he translated. He had the audacity to think that the average man could actually read the Word of God. You know, and that he could learn from it, and so he translated it into English. Um, 
Roman Catholicism didn't think much of that. They thought only the clergy could have the Bible, and only they could interpret it, only they could understand it. And so as a result of that, as a result of that, uh, um, of those actions, they uh, had a trial, and he was condemned as a heretic because you have an English Bible in your lap. Just think about that for a minute. He was condemned as a heretic. And uh, he was ordered to be executed. He was to be burned at the stake. And when they took him and tied him to the stake, um, he shouted in a loud voice, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. They strangled him to shut him up. And then they burned his body. You know, the temptation would be, I'll burn the Bibles. But he didn't. He stayed firm. That's what we're called to do. Jesus understood that. Not only did he stand firm, he proclaimed. That was a proclamation that the king of England, who happened to be Henry VIII, would have his eyes opened to understand the scriptures. That was, that was, the, that was the cry. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. <laughs> so they... It's not funny, but they strangled him. You know, they were going to burn him to death, and they strangled him to keep him quiet. But that's the idea here. And then it goes on to say, Jesus, Jesus, who suffered through the weaknesses, the human weaknesses that all of us suffer through, who went through numerous temptations to not do the work he was called to do, but he did it without sin, yet without sin. That's, that's what it says here. It says, yet without sin. He overcame every test. He proved to be the real thing. And there was no breaking of him. Understand something. Had he failed at any minute point, at any minute point, then he would have needed an atonement for himself. Understand that. When you go to Leviticus 16, the first thing you see in the offering system, there's a whole bunch of things that goes on there. And oh, by the way, it starts out by saying, after the death of the sons of Aaron, which refers back a couple of chapters to the sons of Aaron who improperly made an offering and died, it says, after their death, then the Day of Atonement is established with these very clear instructions. And it's coming off of how serious they are because it's after the death of those who failed to do it right. Aaron, now you go in there. <laughs> but anyway, it, but anyway, after, after that, it, it comes into this, to, this uh, to, to what Aaron had to do. And the first thing he had to do in the, in the atonement sacrifice was make an atonement for himself. That was the first thing he had to do. He had to make an offering for Aaron before he could make an atonement for the people. Because he was not a spotless lamb. He was a sinful man. And he was in need of atonement too. So what we're saying here is if Jesus had failed at any point, then he would have been just like the rest of the Levitical priesthood in need of an offering for himself. And as a result of that, he could not be both 
the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He would have been disqualified. The result is there would be no atonement. No lasting atonement. No completed work. He would not have ascended to the pinnacle of heaven. That's, that's the import of, of, uh, of, this, uh, of this passage. Leviticus 16.6, Aaron had to first make an offering for himself. Hebrews 7.27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. That's, that's the point. That's the point here. He was without sin. Uh, he defeated. Uh, understand here, sinlessness is not a passive item. It's an active item. He defeated it, is the idea here. Uh, it was an action. Uh, look at chapter 5, verse, verses 8 and following. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll be getting into Melchizedek next week, probably. But at any rate, uh, but at any rate that's the point here. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. First John. Chapter three. I'm going to do first first John chapter three, verse one, and then we're going to go to verse five. See what kind of love the Father has given us that he should that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that we is that is that they don't know him. And then in verse five it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and and in him there is no sin. This is the point of this part of the text. He was the great high priest because in him was no sin. He needed no atonement. He was the atonement. That's, 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 the, that's the picture that is being, uh, being presented here. And then finally, he is the uh, high priest who gives confidence. Verse uh, verse. Back on the right page here. In the right book. Okay. <laughs> let us let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. There's a major change. In the worship here, in the worship of God, under the Levitical system, as, as we've kind of already explained, that there was one man on a certain day for a limited amount of time 
who could go in before God on the pre- uh, uh, in the presence of God on behalf of the people. One man, one day, for a limited amount of time, could be in the presence of God. And that could only be done after a very elaborate system of washings and clothes changings and, and, and various other things that had to go on in order for him to be able to, to come in uh, to present the offering. And along with that was the, was the warning, or you die, all along, the, all along that path. But we come to Calvary and things change. They change dramatically. They're probably symbolized best, and it's not a, so much a symbol, but it's a, it's a, it's a clear statement of what is, about, of what is happening, is, is when, the, when, the, when the curtain that covered the Holy of Holies in the temple at the crucifixion is torn from the top to the bottom, exposing the Holy of Holies, opening it up. That's what this text is saying Jesus did. He opened the Holy of Holies. No longer was it limited to one man for one moment on one day. It was now open to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what this text is telling us. His sacrifice opened the way to draw near to God. That's that's what he's saying here. He He made it possible for us to come near to God, making it, making it possible for a redeemed sinner to come into the presence of holy God. That's what it says. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near is a, is a phrase that implies worship. It is a worship phrase. It's used over and over again. I listed four places elsewhere that it's used in Hebrews there in your notes. And it's always draw near to God. The Hebrews couldn't draw near to God. They had to stand off. But Jesus opened the door, so to speak. Well, the curtain, I guess. But he opened it up. That you can come into the very presence of God. You, can, you and I can come into the very throne room of God. When you pray, you are going directly to God. You can come directly into his presence. And he hears you and he receives you. You're welcome there. You didn't have to kill a goat before you got there. I'm so glad. Yeah, me too. He says, let us... Let us draw near. Let us, literally it says, let us keep coming. It's what the, the literal word, words mean. It means, let us keep coming. It's not a one-time thing once, once a year. It's every day. Let us keep coming. Let us keep coming to God. And then he, he, says, he says, and we're to do it with confidence, with boldness, with assurance. And we can do that because Jesus has passed through the heavens, 417, and is seated at the right hand of God in 1-3. He opened that door. And it gives us boldness to do just that, to keep coming to Him. To keep coming to Him. 
We're invited into the presence of the throne of grace. For Christ reconciled us to God, and we can enter without hesitations. 3.6, in 3.6 he wrote, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. That's, that's the idea that, that, is, that is, he is offering to us here. Uh, we are to come without hesitation. And then he gives us the purpose clause behind this. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to keep coming to the throne of grace. And this is why, this is, this is why we're to keep coming to the throne of grace. That we might receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. That's, that's what we're to come to the throne for. He says we're to, come to, to, we're come to the throne to find mercy and grace. Often these two words are used as synonyms. They're used synonymously. But they do have a, a slight distinct uh, difference. And in this text, the way they're being used, they have a little bit of a difference. Um, Westcott says that mercy uh, relates to our past failures. Uh, it's an extended to man and his weaknesses. The things, the things in the past, there has been mercy for them. It's been taken care of. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. That's mercy. Undeserved, undeserved mercy. God gave mercy. He took mercy upon us. Out of his love, he so loved us that he had mercy upon us, is the idea uh, that's being expressed there. And then secondly... Uh, we are, we are, he, he speaks of that we are to, we are to find grace. We receive mercy. That's been giving, given. And we are to find grace. Uh, grace is a present and, and, uh, is, it, it's grace for present and future work. And it's done according to necessity. It's available when you need it. Which, quite frankly, is all the time. But, but nevertheless, uh, that's the point. It's, this is Westcott. Uh, Burkhoff put it this way. Uh, mercy is God's compassion. Grace is his goodness and love. That's the idea here. And the, the whole concept behind all of this is it's to help us in a time of need. At those moments when we are weak. At those moments. Well, it's at all every moment. But it's. It's we are to bring every need to Jesus Christ. That's the point here. The door is open. Keep coming. Keep coming. Grace is sufficient. That's that's the idea here. Uh, Grace is there for the moment in the time of need. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one. One of us, according to the measure of, of Christ's gift, therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led, hopes, uh, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is what he's saying here. Grace is available. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. No, excuse me, chapter 9 uh, at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things... At all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. 
He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is the idea that he's expressing here. He's saying, we have a great high priest, a great, great priest. Or as Luther said, the greatest of all priests. That's who we have in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and and that, that priest is seated at the pinnacle of the heavens. He's seated at the very pinnacle of the heavens. And as a result of that, we are to hold fast to our confession. We are to believe in our heart and profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, that's, that's what we are to be doing. That's what we are to be about. And we are to do this because, because we have a high priest who knows our weaknesses, who knows those times of fear that we experience, who knows those times of temptation that we experience to not do what is right. And to follow after our own desires. He, he understands those things. He's been there. He took the test. He passed it. We can too. He made the way that we can too. That's, that's, that's the idea here. He, he, he can identify with that. And as a result of all of that, he has opened the door to the Holy of Holies, and we are to confidently keep coming before God so that we may continually receive mercy and find grace to meet the need of the moment. That's the picture of our Lord in this text. Uh, That's his priesthood. It's not a single day, one moment thing. It's a continual priesthood, moment by moment by moment. He's there representing us. Do we have any comments or questions this morning? Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this text this morning, and we understand and we look back to Leviticus chapter 16, and to all the ceremony and all the ritual and all the things that were necessary to cover sin for just a year. And then we look and we see what Jesus has done. That he once and for all took away our sins as far as the east is from the west. He rent the temple so that now not just one man on one day for one moment can come into your presence on our behalf, but through him we come daily, moment by moment. In every need, you're there to supply what is necessary. And Father, we give thanks for that. And we, uh, we, we wish to understand and comprehend the full greatness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask that uh, this day, this week, and the days that follow, uh, that we would be faithful to believe in our hearts and proclaim with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we would thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.